0: to listen to a sermon
1: from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Romans chapter 9 verses 1
0: to 16. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised amen it is not as though god's word had failed for not all who are descended from israel are israel nor because they are his descendants are they all abraham's children on the contrary it is through isaac that your offspring will be reckoned in other words it is not the natural children who are god's children but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as abraham's offspring For this was how the promise was stated at the appointed time i will return and sarah will have a son not only that but rebecca's children had one and the same father our father isaac yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that god's purpose in election might stand not by works but by him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger just as it is written Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy.
1: Um, Following on from verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, i raised you up for this very purpose that i might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth therefore god has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden one of you will say to me then why does god still blame us for who resists his will but who are you o man to talk back to god shall what is formed say to him who formed it Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he had prepared in advance for glory, For even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen in that very place where it is said to them, You are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame.
2: Well, good evening. My name's Roger. It's great to be with you and to be looking at this passage. As, um, as Zahn already mentioned earlier on, this is the third part in our series on Romans. We've been doing it over three years, and we come to the last part of Romans now. And where we left Romans was at a high point, Uh, We've heard some of that high point tonight. We read these words in Romans chapter 8. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Such extraordinary words. Uh, words that actually shape and change your life, as we've heard both from Laura and from Ben, if those things sink deep into your life, if that understanding of God's love for you sinks deep into your life, it changes the way you approach life. It changes the way you approach difficult situations. It changes the way you embrace others. It's a beautiful thing. And Paul has been speaking throughout Romans about God's love for us, about God's grace towards us, about Jesus' death and what it has meant, and that is a wonderful, wonderful high point. Something to grasp onto and hold onto and to meditate on day and night. But then Paul is left with a very difficult question. Paul is a Jewish man. And he thinks about those who are in his friends and family around him. And he thinks about the fact that God has chosen them as a people. And he's left with a question. If nothing separates you from the love of God, why does not all Israel believe when the message should be clearest to them? And that's what he starts to unpack in this chapter. He starts to explore this very difficult thought about how come Israel hasn't responded. Even though God has reached out to them in love. Now the truth is, this is one of the more difficult chapters in Romans. And we're just going to step our way through it to see what Paul has to say. You really need to be here next week as well, though. Because this is only one half of the story, and you won't get the complete picture unless you come next week and actually the following week as well. Actually, come for the whole series. It's really important. But you really do need to be here in the next couple of weeks to pick up on the rest of it. Because if all you hear is what we're saying tonight, then you've missed out on the whole story. Nonetheless, the things that we need to hear tonight are challenging and difficult and important to hear. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And as Paul considers this question in light of the Jews, he says this in the beginning of Romans chapter 9. You might like to have this passage open. It would be worth following through. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow or great grief. An unceasing mental anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed, or the word there is an anathema, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. Uh, You hear the anguish in Paul's words here. This is a man who's faced prison, shipwreck, this is a man who knows what it is to suffer. And yet when he comes to this question, he feels anguish for his friends and for his family. This is no mere intellectual exercise for him. This cuts to the heart because he wants to know what about those around him who haven't accepted who God is, have not followed him and not followed his ways. He says, in fact, I'd rather be cursed and cut off from Christ. Can you believe he says that? This is a man who really understands the depth of God's grace towards him. He really gets it. This is how much pain he is in. Paul is struggling at this point with a very deep problem, both personal and intellectual. He goes on to point out that the people of Israel actually had so many benefits. See there in verse 4? The people of Israel's the Israel, theirs is the adoption as sons. Uh, the picture there is of Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, for example, where pe- the people of Israel are described as God's son. Special relationship, intimate relationship. Theirs is the divine glory, are really pointing to the fact that God dwelt amongst them, dwelt amongst his people, sometimes in a cloud, sometimes as fire, in the temple. God's presence was with his people. God was amongst them. Theirs is the covenants. God had actually made arrangements and agreements with them through Abraham, Moses, David, each time saying, I will be with my people. I will work with my people. I will bless my people. Theirs is the receiving of the law referring to God giving the Ten Commandments, helping them to understand who God was and how they were called to live. Theirs is the temple worship. They could come together as they understood what God had called them to. They were to offer sacrifices in, in light of their sins. They were to come to the priest. They had access to God. They had a special relationship with God. Theirs is the promises Throughout the Old Testament, there's promise after promise after promise pointing forward to Jesus. They have everything. There's other patriarchs. There, from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. Paul's point, of course, is that those who are Jews have a very, very special position before God. He's pointed how out how deep the relationship could be. And yet, something is wrong. It would seem that they are separated from God's love. Something has gone wrong. Now, perhaps you've thought about this in other contexts. I've wondered about about this in other contexts. I've watched as people have grown up in wonderful Christian homes where parents have cared for them and loved them, where they've gone to church, they've learnt lots of things. Perhaps they've gone on to study the Bible at Theological College. I know some people who are in this position. They've had all the riches of God's grace laid out before them. Great teachers, great people who supported them and encouraged them. And now, they don't seem to be anywhere with God at all. I meet up with some of them every now and then. And it's kind of devastating. Oh, wow, how did, how, did, how did we get here? What's happened? There was so, pro- so much promise. How come? And that's the kind of thing that Paul is asking here. He's saying, look at the people of Israel. Look at their grand history. Look at all God has done for them. What's happened? Well, he then explores this issue through a number of questions. In verse 6, he starts out, and says, it's not as though God's word has failed. Of course, that could be one of the issues, couldn't it? God has spoken, God has reached out to his people, and he's failed to speak clearly. He's failed to engage them. But that's not the problem. In fact, Paul points us out to another problem. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Paul's point here is that not all racial Israel is the true Israel. Question of how do you define Israel? Who is in Israel? And he goes on to describe what he means by this by pointing to some Old Testament examples. He talks about Isaac and Ishmael, both sons of Abraham, descendants of Abraham. But only one of them was accepted by God. Ishmael was Abraham's physical descendant, but not his spiritual descendant. Only Isaac was a child of the promise. See there in verses 7 and 8? On the contrary, it was through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Paul takes this one step further by giving another example. Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, both of them physically descendants of Abraham, But only one of them is a spiritual descendant. Verse 10 Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's hard to miss Paul's point, isn't it? The difference between Esau and Jacob was God's purpose in election. God's choosing. The choice was made prior to their birth. And the choice was not made on performance. It wasn't about whether they'd done something good or bad. Not by works, but by him who calls. Paul is saying God chose Jacob above Esau, not because of anything Jacob had done, not that he was morally superior to Esau, the only reason that Jacob received the promise of God was because God was gracious towards him. Now, as you can imagine, that has caused difficulties for Christians throughout the ages. Those are really challenging words, really difficult things to think about. Does it mean that God's kind of arbitrary... That he gets the dice and he kind of rolls it and goes, that one, not that one? Is that the way it works? Well, that doesn't seem to be consistent with what's being said here. Paul doesn't say anything about how God goes about the choosing. He doesn't describe that for us. We're not told the reasons for God's choosing. Just that he chooses The other really serious question that it raises is who is the author of our salvation? If it's us, if we're the author of our salvation, then it will be dependent on us. If it's God and he's the author of our salvation, then it's dependent on him. If you get rid of election, you actually end up With more problems. If we're the author of our salvation, what happens is you start to think, well, you need to be clever enough, you need to be in the right place at the right time, you need to have the right understanding, and you need to make the right choices. Where does that lead? Well, that leads you to a position of saying, well, I'm better than other people because I'm clever, I worked it out. Those guys over there didn't work it out. If we're the authors of our own salvation, it's very easy for us to become self righteous, to say, We worked it out. We're clever. But the Bible says, We are saved by grace, not by our works. We are not the authors of our own salvation. Okay, if we're not the authors of our salvation, quite naturally then, the question comes in verse 14, what then shall we say is God unjust? How come someone receives something and someone else doesn't? I remember this well from raising my kids. You know that situation when one child gets something instead of another. Once we'd been out, was late, on the way home... We were driving and we decided one of our children fell asleep in the car and the other one was still awake. And we thought, well, the one who's fallen asleep will probably sleep through the whole night. It'll be okay. So we stopped at Macca's, got takeaway and got home. Put one of them to bed and the other one was still awake. But about five minutes later, the one who was asleep woke up. And came out and said, where is my McDonald's? This is not fair. 20 years later, they're still telling the story. This is not fair. Where's my McDonald's? And that's what it feels like here. How come? Some receive and some don't. It it just does not seem fair. Well, Paul says in verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. The reason? Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on a man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And just recently, we had that horrible situation where two young men faced the firing squad in Indonesia. We were all horrified by the prospect, and as the time came closer, various hashtags started to appear like, I stand for mercy. Other people started to say things like, they deserve mercy. Those two guys, look at what they've done. Look at how their lives have been transformed. They deserve mercy. But of course, that's a complete misunderstanding of mercy, isn't it? Because mercy is never deserved. It is always undeserved. By its very definition, mercy is not deserved. It has to be something that's given freely that is not deserved so if we stand back a little bit and think about what Paul is saying here let's consider what the whole of Romans has been saying in Romans 6 23 we heard that the wages of sin is death for the way we treat God for the way we treat others for the way we treat ourselves for the way we treat this world the punishment is is death. We all are to receive that punishment. But God, in his mercy, shows us mercy. Because he's a merciful God. It's undeserved. God reaches out to us, not because we deserve it, but because he chooses to. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. If God's salvation were a matter of justice and righteousness only, we would all be damned. No one has a claim upon God's mercy. The fact is that anyone who has ever received mercy has received it entirely because of the character and nature of God. The real mystery is not that everybody is saved, but that anybody is saved. That's the mystery. The mystery is that God would save anybody, particularly when we're all condemned. That's what mercy is about. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now if that's not difficult enough to get our heads around, Paul makes it slightly more difficult for us. Uh, And you can see this unfold as he then again refers to the Old Testament in verse 17. He goes on to explain how this actually works. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. Pharaoh talking about the people of Israel in Egypt. You remember that Pharaoh would not let the people go. And so Paul refers to Pharaoh back in Egypt. And the scripture says, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and hardens whom he wants to harden. Now Paul is speaking here of Pharaoh's hard heart against the people of Israel. Paul is using Pharaoh as a case study of God's sovereignty as it relates to human responsibility. Now what's interesting as we go back to looking at the whole story about Pharaoh is many times it's described as God hardening his heart. But actually there are a number of times where Pharaoh says... He hardened his own heart. And we'll need to come back to that next week and think about that a little bit more. But there's two things going on in that story. God hardens his heart. He hardens his own heart. And somehow both are true. Somehow we have to hold both those truths together. And I wonder if this might not be a useful way forward. I've been trying to think about this and trying to work out how how might we think about this uh, a little more. How do we hold these things together? Well, Romans tells us, Romans chapter 1 tells us that we are all born dead. Uh, We're not alive. We need to be made alive. That our hearts are full of lusts, of things that lead us away from God. And that as people continue to reject God and continue to say, I will not follow God, he gives them over to their desires. He says, you want that? I'll give you over to it. I won't prevent you from following it. I'll give it you over to it. And so I think what Paul might be suggesting here is in talking about um, Pharaoh's hardened heart is that he's given Pharaoh over to his hardened heart. Yes, he was spiritually dead, but he's given him over to the hardness of his heart even further. Now, I know not everyone is going to agree with me on this point, but I think this is maybe a way to start thinking through this difficult issue that Paul has raised with us, this difficult issue of, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. God gives us over to our own desires, the desires of our own hearts, which will lead us astray. Well, quite naturally, that raises another difficult issue in verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God blame us? For who can resist his will? If God has given us over, how can we possibly resist God's will? If we're like Pharaoh, hardening our hearts, how can we possibly resist God's will? What Paul says is a bit surprising and a bit confronting. He says this in verse 20 But who are you, O man? To talk back to God. Shall what is formed say to who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes as well as for co- common use? Paul's saying, God has the right of ownership. Just after I got married, Jane and I decided to go to a pottery course. This is my best pot. We threw it. Jane used to do the painting. I used to do the throwing. It was great fun. We had great fun together. But can you imagine as I threw the clay onto the wheel? It's a bit wonky. I know some people are laughing out there. Okay, it's the best I could do, really. Um, could you imagine the clay saying back to me as I, I was throwing it onto the wheel, by the way, I want to be a teacup. Well, no. Or by the way, I want to be a vase, I don't want to be a pot. Well, no. I'm the one working with the clay, creating the clay. I'm the creator, I'm the builder, I'm the former of what's there. I have ownership over what's going on. Now, Paul is using that as a way of describing what God is doing. He's saying, should, should we really be talking back to God and asking him about the choices he's making? Who are we? We're just clay. We're owned by him. He has the rights of ownership. shall what is formed is to say to him who formed it why did you make me like this now i think the real issue here and the really difficult issue here is do we trust god it's really difficult isn't it do we trust that god really knows what he's doing Do we really say, God, you know, this is... I don't know why you have mercy on whom you can have mercy. I don't want to show compassion to who you want to show compassion. I don't know why that means that some don't end up following you and some do. That just seems beyond me. But actually, I trust you. And I trust you... Because I've seen what you've done to show mercy. See, God, when he shows mercy, sends his own son into the world to die in our place. It costs God everything to show mercy. It costs God His Son to show us His mercy. So do I trust that God is acting with mercy? Do I trust that God is acting rightly? That's what this question raises for us. Am I willing to entrust myself to God that he will make the right decisions, that he is the potter and that we are the clay? Because, you know, God has a purpose in doing this. It may not be a purpose we would have thought of, but it's a purpose in showing mercy, in choosing. Verse 22 tells us that purpose. For what if God, choosing to show his wrath and making his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? Everyone deserves God's wrath, God's judgment. What if he's shown great patience for those prepared for destruction? What if he did this... To make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. See, the way God is operating here, the way that God is moving and doing things, is for his glory. It's not about us, it's about him. And he's saying, trust me. It's for my glory. This is the reason I've chosen to operate in this way. Now, I recognise that is difficult. And we do have some things to say about human responsibility and our response, and we're going to be looking at that next week. But for the moment, let us just consider, I invite you to consider, whether you trust God that he will act in a merciful and just kind of way. Because that's what Paul is inviting us to do as we read these scriptures together. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Who are we to question the way God has done things as he shows his mercy? Now believe it or not, If we hold on to God's sovereign action in this way, there are some surprising and beautiful results. There are some implications for our lives which are wonderful. There is something beautiful about realising that nothing you've done has gained salvation that actually God has reached out to you and called you to himself. There's nothing quite as precious as that, is Is there? That God would reach out to us and choose us, not because we deserved it, not because of our works, but because he's chosen to. That just makes me want to praise God and say, wow, I can't believe that you did that. That's, that's amazing. How come you've done that for me? It's also tremendously humbling, isn't it? Because it means I can't look around at others' people and say, well, you just weren't clever enough. You just weren't smart enough. You weren't just in the right place at the right time. Now, what it means is that as I look around, I go, wow, God, God, You chose me. I can't believe it. Thank you. But what it also means is is as I look around, I can't work out who God's chosen and who God hasn't. I know it's not on the basis of education or ability. I know it's not on the basis of background or what people have done. So actually, that just frees me up to talk to anyone about God because it doesn't matter where they've come from. or what happened has happened. I can speak to them in the full knowledge that as I speak to them, God may well be calling them to himself. And so it gives us a tremendous freedom, if you're someone who follows Jesus, to speak to anyone about Jesus, about the love of God, because we have no idea who he's chosen. It doesn't limit us. It opens up all kinds of possibilities in relationships, all kinds of possibilities, even with those who we might least expect it. Because God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Can I invite you to just sit with that, come back next week as we explore this a little bit further, but in the process understand That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.